This is the Bob McCallan Podcast, brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. It's Friday. Dave Hodge is with us. Grey Cup is on Sunday. And yet, we're having a special baseball presentation before we talk about the Grey Cup with Bob Irving. And David, it's one you requested. Well, uh, I saw on Netflix something called It Ain't Over with a, a shot of Yogi Berra. And... Um, Nobody told me to watch it. I told myself to start watching it, and I couldn't stop watching it. And uh, anybody who has seen it will understand that. Uh, it is uh, the life story of, of Yogi Berra, basically as, as told uh, through, the, uh, through the eyes and, uh, and through the voice of uh, his oldest granddaughter, Lindsay Berra, who is the executive producer of the film titled It Ain't Over. And I, ch I checked with John and I said, is there any chance uh, we could uh, interview Lindsay Barra on the podcast? And John said, no problem. I know her. Well, I should have guessed. John, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, most people that would, would fit this, uh, this guest spot. And uh, quickly, uh, Lindsay said, for sure. And um, I said, there's so many questions that I want to ask. Uh, this person about her, uh, her grandfather, about baseball, and mostly about a, a film that I think, you know, is going to win lots of awards if it hasn't already. Um, so we're, we're touting this, this is as good a plug as, as we can give for In yeah. Eight Over on Netflix, uh, starring Yogi Berra, co-starring Lindsay Berra, or vice versa. In eight over, executive producer Lindsay Barra joins us after this. Hi, this is Bob McCowan for BetRivers.com. Hey, if you're looking for a sports book or casino app, you should check out the BetRivers Sports and Casino app today. Play all of your favorite casino games for real money anywhere and anytime. Plus, get in the action with each sports game with hundreds of sports betting options. And get ready to feel like a VIP because you'll earn both loyalty level points and bonus store points on every real money wager you make. You must be 19 plus available in Ontario only. Please play responsibly. If you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, contact Connex Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 or speak to an advisor free of charge. Bet Rivers. Dot com. Welcome back to the McCowan Podcast. Dave Hodge in today for Bob. Uh, joined now by executive producer Lindsay Barra, who uh, of, the, of the, uh, the Netflix documentary, It Ain't Over, who just happens to be the granddaughter of Yogi Berra. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, um... I, I I will tell you uh, transparently that uh, my friend Hodge here said, we've got to get Lindsay Barra on to talk about this documentary. Do you know her? And I said, well, I've met her a couple of times, so that's good. It makes it easy to reach out, and we have mutual friends, so that I was able to, to catch up to you. Um, I know in the documentary you explain succinctly why you did this documentary, but perhaps you can tell everybody um, why you did it and... The reaction you've had to it since it's been premiered um 
I'm going to go, I'm going to go back a little bit. So everybody assumes that the story that opens the documentary for those who haven't seen it uh, prior to the 2015 MLB all-star game in Cincinnati, major league baseball walked out what they called the four greatest living players. And it was um, Hank Aaron, Johnny bench, Sandy Koufax and Willie Mays. And I was sitting in the room watching this all-star game with my very much alive grandpa Yogi. And I'm like, how can you say that he's not one of the greatest living players? This is insane. And um, the New York Times says in the movie, I was mildly indignant. Well, I was mildly indignant because I really thought that he should have been included. And a lot of people think that that was the impetus for the documentary. But um, my grandfather passed a few months after that, and I was in the midst of trying to get him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and I was really occupied with other things. And I'm not a filmmaker, so making a movie about that hadn't really crossed my mind. So you fast forward a few years, and um, there's a guy named Peter Sobloff, who is the big producer of our documentary, It Ain't Over, and he's played in my grandfather's uh, Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center golf outing for many, many years. And he does produce films. And um, in his words, his wife, Imelda, dragged him to see the Mr. Rogers documentary. He didn't want to go. Uh, this was um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which came out in summer of 2018. And he ended up loving it. And the next day at my grandfather's golf outing, he said to my dad and uncles, how come there's no documentary, no Mr. Rogers documentary, but about your dad? And in typical Barra fashion, my dad and my uncles just said, because nobody's ever made one. And that was what got the ball rolling. Peter um, had produced a film directed by Sean Mullen, our director prior to that. Sean um, played rugby at West Point. So he was a military veteran, just like my grandpa Yogi. And my dad and my uncles loved him immediately. Sean's a big teddy bear of a human being. You can't not like Sean. And um, I met him shortly thereafter and started just, you know, if we're going to do this, I was saying you have to, you know, you got to get Roger Angel and Vin Scully and Audrey Graziola and Tony Kubek and Bobby Richardson and Hector Lopez. And these are not people, the young people. So you have to like hurry up and you don't know them. So you need me. And that was how mm -hmm. I evolved, you know, really from a logistical perspective at the beginning of the documentary. But I think the idea from the beginning was to um first of all remind people what a great baseball player my grandfather was because i do think his uh personality overshadowed his on-field accomplishments but then also to remind folks that as great as he was on the field he was an even better human being um and the other goal was to not make this a baseball movie it there's baseball in it but it really is a movie about, as Sean says, a life well lived. And it's a typically American life that so many folks can relate to. And that was a long answer. So I apologize. That's all right. That's what podcasts I'm going to, are for. Uh, I'm going to toss in a little aside here and then ask you something else about, about the film. But uh, Michael Farber, whom you, you may know. Uh, yeah, I love Michael. <laughs> well, so do we. Um, I told uh, Michael that you were coming on today. And he said, I have one story that you can tell or not tell uh, up to me. And I didn't know if we would have time, but uh, here we go after you uh, talked about your grandfather being the uh, the, the human being he was uh, beyond the baseball player he was. And Michael told the story of the 1978 spring training in, Fo in Fort Lauderdale, mid fifties morning, kind of chilly. And Michael said he was battling a cold and he was shivering uh outside the dugout 
and a yogi approached him, took off his blue satin Yankee jacket and said, here, kid. And uh, Michael's uh, final comment was, love the man ever since. So uh, so there you go. As for Yogi Berra, the baseball player, it makes no sense that a winner of 10 World Series titles doesn't get the recognition due him. But um, there are reasons. If he was six inches taller, if he was built like Johnny Bench, um, it's different. It, it's wrong because Yogi's short stature and and uh, and build should have made him stand out and uh, and get even more credit given his accomplishments. But uh, that was one reason. And then there's the matter of Yogiisms that sort of uh, took over. They made him more famous than than the World Series titles, I guess. How much did that bother you, and how much did that bother him? Um, I actually don't think it bothered him as much as it bothers me. Um, I, I say this a lot about my grandpa Yogi, but he, you know, first generation Italian immigrant from a very poor family. He would tell you that his three older brothers were better than he was at baseball, but they all had to work to help support the family. And then they ganged up on my great grandfather and said, one of them should have a chance to play baseball. And that was why grandpa Yogi got the chance so he was incredibly grateful for and aware of the sacrifice that his brothers had made for him. Um, you know, he volunteers to serve his country uh, in the Navy in World War II and ends up off of Omaha Beach during the D-Day invasion. And, you know, when you see videos of D-Day with all the bullets and all the bombs, like he was right there mm -hmm. offshore providing machine gun cover fire for our troops and then spent a bunch of days afterwards pulling the bodies of his fallen comrades out of the water. And then he did all that again in the invasion of Southern France. And I think that he was very keenly aware of the fact that there were many, many, many men who did not come home from that experience. And he was able to come home and meet and marry my grandmother, who everybody said, you know, he was dating up and he didn't deserve her and whatever. So he comes home and gets the girl and ends up playing a kid's game for a living. And I don't think that there was a single day that went by that he didn't consider how profoundly blessed he was to be living any life, um, and specifically that life. And I think what people said or thought about him after that, like kind of just didn't matter, right? Like the perspective that he brought to every day was such that, all right, you know, you think I'm too ugly to be a Yankee? To hell with you. I still don't know what that one means. Um, you know, well, and, when you're between DiMaggio and Mantle, well, I guess when you're mean, between DiMaggio and Mantle, cute. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, regardless of whether you think you look like a fire hydrant or a gargoyle, the guy was a great hitter and a great winner. And he knew that he was profoundly confident in himself without being, you know, having any ego. Um, and I think it didn't really matter to him what people said. Um, for us, for like my dad and my uncles and, and me, when I hear people now talking about the greatest catchers of all time, the greatest players of all time, I, I just don't like that he's really disappeared from that conversation. He deserves to be in that conversation. Well, he hasn't disappeared now. I can tell you that. Your project fulfilled its purpose. There's no question about that. I, I'm curious in your in your time sitting on the sofa with your grandfather when he was
watching games, would would he talk about the game as a manager? Would he talk about the game as a catcher? And what could you glean from that? Oh my God. Honestly, watching baseball games, you know, they, they say talking to Yogi Berra about baseball is like talking to Homer about the gods. I'm like, I don't remember who said that, but it is profoundly true. Like he he just would see things, you know, I'd roll over to his house at like, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock after like a club soccer game or something I'd play and I would steal the leftovers off their stove and sit on the couch and he'd be watching like the Yankees playing in Oakland, the late West Coast game. And he was just able to pick out, you know, flaws with hitters just by like looking at the way they stood in the box he would tell you what a pitcher was gonna throw if he didn't do it what he should have thrown um you know he he would talk about where fielders should or shouldn't have been positioned um he was always thinking you know three or four moves ahead with the managers like he he just had such an intuitive understanding of the game and a lot of times I mean I learned a ton sitting there listening to him but a lot of times, like you'd say, he'd say something, you'd be like, wait, what is he talking about? And then it would happen. And you're like, oh my God, he totally, he, he was like, you know, he had some kind of like baseball ESP. Um, but you you hear like Nick Swisher and Derek Jeter and, and, and these younger folks who grandpa got to be friends with later in his life, talk about what it was like having him on the bench. And he would just pick out some little thing in their stance or, or just some weird way they were, they were thinking about the game that wasn't right and he would point out oh just think about this and and nick would say like and i had he told me to move up you know six inches in the box and i hit the best i ever hit for an entire season right like he, he was i don't know what he was saying he was late on curveballs or something but um yeah he grandpa just was able to pick out the little things and just you know he was able to see the minutiae but also see the forest for the trees you know he just baseball was was in his blood um, I have a nice story about a yogi quote, if I might, John. Uh, it won't take long. <laughs> um, it's a podcast, Dave. Go ahead. Doesn't matter. You know, there's no time. No we're not throwing. People can turn us commercial. off if they want. It's okay. That's right. No, exactly. That. Well, that's the one thing we couldn't do with the documentary. I could not turn it off, and oh. I was mad when it was over. Oh, I, I'm glad to hear oh. that. At the uh, at, at the risk of sounding corny, uh, it ain't over till you've seen it for the last time. And, and it, uh, honestly, I will say public service announcement, it really ain't over till it's over. When you watch the documentary, you have to watch till the end of the credits because we oh, have yes. so good stuff that we filled Absolutely. up the credits right till the very end. That's true. Uh, anyway, the biggest baseball fan uh, I know uh, lost his wife a couple of years ago, and, and I was asked to eulogize her. And uh, with my friend, her husband, uh, sitting in the front row, I wanted some sort of baseball reference that would that would fit the moment. And, um, and I asked another friend, if uh, a baseball guy, if he could suggest anything. And he said, um, oh my God, you can't use the most famous. <laughs> no, uh, I won't go any further. But he said, go find a list of, of yogiisms, shall we say. And I did. And I found something that was perfect for uh, a funeral eulogy. Love is the most important thing in the world. But baseball is pretty good too. And of all of the of the yogi quotes that um, made such sense, and and could be used in a way that nobody laughed, but everybody went, "Hmm." Um, that was it. And 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 I think that yeah, a lot of them uh, you you could you could laugh at and make fun of him, but a lot of them 
you could make a lot of sense out of them too. Can I tell you something that is going to make you a little bit sad, but I just, I'm going to tell it because the facts are the facts. He never said that. That is squarely in the, I didn't really say everything I said category, not. I don't care. <laughs> no, I know. But, and I say this a lot because people always tell me, ask me like, what are the real ones? What are the fake ones? Yeah. Uh, I think that the sentiment behind that one is something that grandpa would 100% be on board with, but it was not one of the ones that he said. <laughs> Okay. The scope of the scope of the program, though, Lindsay, was there isn't a better cast of interviews than any sports documentary I've ever seen. Um, Art, so whether the, whether they be, whether they be posthumous or whether you actually got the guys and poked them enough to go get the interviews when they could. But just when you think, well, we need to hear from Vin Scully or we need to hear from Joe Garagiola. They show up. Yeah. There's a pace and a tempo to this documentary that I think it truly represents something very special. How, how did you how did how did you manage that flow? And how how much how were those discussions with with your producer and your and the director? So the flow is 100% credit uh, for writing this documentary goes to Sean Mullen, our director, and Sean has a very um, it, 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 well, interesting, I guess I'll just say, way of looking at making movies, right? And it is 100% grounded in Aristotle. <laughs> and his mm -hmm. theory of movie making is that there's a crisis and a catharsis. And you have to move from crisis to catharsis throughout the course of the movie. And in our case, the crisis is that grandpa is criminally overlooked. And the catharsis is that he will never be overlooked again. And the way Sean decided to set up the movie um, you know, he broke it into buckets, which were um, kind of separated by the the quotes that were offset with the other mm -hmm. famous philosopher quotes. And, um, you know, he just put things into buckets. And if it didn't fit into a bucket that he had, you know, becoming a Yankee or like whatever the titles of the buckets were that Sean had in his head, um, it got left on the cutting room floor. And unfortunately, we had to lose a lot of fantastic stuff. But when you're when you're cramming 90 years into a 98 minute documentary, you're going to have mm -hmm. to sacrifice some things. But I think Sean made some tremendous decisions. And we were very lucky to have basically anyone we called to say, hey, can you do an interview about my grandpa? They would be like, yes, what time, where, when do you need me, wow. right? There were only a few people that we wanted that we couldn't get. Um, it, uh, the ones that come to mind, Al Kaline and Brooks Robinson were not super well, um, so we couldn't get them. Um, Al has since, you know, like- it, Brooks they, they Robinson has passed away since. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and and actually six people who we interviewed in the movie have also since, right. since passed. Right. We were lucky, we were very lucky. We wanted to talk to Jorge Posada, but he spent most of the pandemic in Mexico, so was not available. And we were shooting during the pandemic. Note, note to anyone who out there who wants to make an independent film, I don't recommend doing it with a 14-month pandemic in the middle of it. That was not fun. Um, and then the last one was Reggie Jackson, who we just couldn't get our schedules to line up. But beyond that, everybody we wanted for this documentary is in the documentary. Well, I, I want to congratulate you. We've done This is our 771st episode of this show. Wow. Um, and uh, you're the first one to use the Aristotle in 771 episodes. And the the other thing is, and I, I being a TV nerd that I am, I have marveled at 
the 1950s because the 1950s were the first generation of television. And so you you find you had a library of footage to deal with too. You had the access to those Yankee teams, the Dodgers. Um, it, it may not have been the greatest quality footage at times, um, but you know this was the first generation, and all these players were in our homes. Yeah. And so I don't I don't know how you kept it to ninety minutes with the, the interviews you did and the footage you had, and then the family films. The family so, films. Were you, was your family tremendously active in, in in movies all the time, like making home movies? No. Um, so the archival footage, first of all, I will say to folks who haven't seen this movie, the archival footage is fantastic. And people may think that all old black and white baseball film is like grainy and you can't see much. But you can totally see what a great athlete my grandfather was, how strong he was how quick and nimble he was behind the plate, the power that, that he used to hit to the opposite field. It 100% comes across in this footage. And the other thing that comes across to me, every time I see it just makes me smile, that that like joyful exuberance. Every time he, he catches a third strike, he leaps out of the crouch like he's winning the darn World Series. He's so excited mm. playing baseball. And that really comes through. Um, a lot of that footage... Um, the old, old stuff, like my grandparents' wedding. Um, I had never seen that before. That's all Julian Robinson, our um, archival, our, our editor, who used the 14-month pandemic to literally comb every un undiscovered crevice of the internet for footage. And I had not seen a lot of that, that footage of my grandparents' wedding before. The Edward R. Murrow interview is an mm -hmm. absolute gem. Um, you know, it was basically, I think it was 19... Let's see, my dad's little. So it was probably 1953. Um, and the camera was in my grandparents' home, which is something you think of as happening today, right? You don't really like beam interviews into people's homes in the 50s. And it was just so cool. And, and you see my dad and my uncle Tim crawling around on the couch, it's like completely disrupting the interview, but it's very charming. And that was a treat to watch. Um, you know, I think any kid of my age, I shouldn't call myself a kid because I'm an old person too. Um, when you get to see your 25-year-old grandparents talking and see their mannerisms and hear their voices, mm -hmm. it, it's just a tremendous gift. I'll take you back to when you were a kid. Uh, the feud with, with George Steinbrenner is legendary, yeah. of course, and, and the reconciliation was, was largely viewed positively, but it did take 14 years. You were a young girl, not yet. 10 years old when George uh, fired Yogi, sorry. I was six, had yeah. Yogi fired. <laughs> uh, and you grew up with those 14 years. Um, how did you feel when they came together again? So that whole thing was very interesting. I'm the oldest of 11 grandchildren and I was the only one with any memories of Yankee Stadium. Everybody else was was too young. And, and my memories, the strongest one is uh, grandpa used to let me sit on the old concrete tan dugout before they redid everything at Yankee Stadium and I would have one leg in the field and one leg in the stands and I didn't like hot dogs when I was a kid so my grandmother would make a big basket of fried chicken she grew up on a farm in Missouri and made some killer fried chicken and she would bring it to the field in a picnic basket which you cannot do today and I would sit there with one leg in one leg out with a chicken leg in one hand and my glove on the other hand because I wasn't allowed to sit there unless I had a glove because I was in foul ball territory and I would watch batting practice and, you know, big Dave Winfield with the flip up sunglasses. But I was the only one who had those memories. 
And then, you know, all through um, middle school and high school, you know, grandpa was with the Astros at that time. He wasn't out of baseball, so we could see him on TV and on the field in Houston, but um, there was never anything going with the Yankees. We knew that he, we knew that there was something missing, you know, that he was sad to miss this stuff at Yankee stadium, but you know, he had his convictions and he wasn't going to go back until George had made things right. And I'm very grateful to Susan Waldman for, for orchestrating that apology. I'm very grateful that George, you know, swallowed his pride and came out and said he was sorry because the moment he said he was sorry, grandpa was back at the ballpark and he was back at spring training. He would go to like two or three games, every homestand. He'd be out there at like two o'clock sitting in the manager's office, hanging out with everybody. And as much as, uh, you know, I was talking earlier about how Derek Jeter and Nick Swisher, Jorge Posada got the opportunity to learn from grandpa after he went back to the stadium. I think he got just as much in return. I would say it probably added 10 years to his life. Hmm. And I'm tremendously grateful for that as well. I, I shouldn't extend this uh, the way I, I'm about to, but uh, watching George and, and Yogi come together um, made me think that it is possible that two sides can uh, can uh, agree after uh, after being such, uh, well, let's say, uh, bitter foes. I and, think that uh, in society today, that, it doesn't seem possible, but uh, the, that proves it is. I, I think that the important part of that is, you know, Grandpa, he didn't like what George did, right? right. He didn't hate George. No. He didn't he didn't like how George had behaved in that moment and thought the apology was deserved. If grandpa didn't have a tremendous amount of respect for George, it probably wouldn't have bothered him as much, right? Because he knew that this man was capable of better, right? And, you know, I, I think that, that it, it is a valuable lesson when people are genuinely sorry and you they come and, 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 you know, it's about forgiveness and moving forward. And yeah, you don't have to like everything everybody says, but if you focus on, the things that you do have in common, like your love of the Yankees and the game of baseball, that's plenty of ground to move forward on. And and I think that that is, you're correct, really missing in this country and in north of the border and all over the place. <laughs> yeah. um, how, how difficult was it to tell the Dale Barra story in this documentary? So my uncle Dale had written a book for folks who don't know. My Dale struck, my uncle Dale struggled with um, drug addiction in the eighties and the nineties. And um, he, my grandpa credits my grandfather for, for saving his life. Um, and Dale, had it was a pretty simple conversation. Yeah. But Dale, as, Dale I, as the book. documentary says, Dale had written a book about this and had been very open uh, already talking about it. So we knew that it was an okay place to go in the documentary and we also, you know, I think part of what so endeared my grandfather to people over the years was the fact that there was so much about him and his life that they could identify with. You know, he's an immigrant, he's a veteran, he had this beautiful love story with my grandmother. And I don't think that there's a person on the planet who can't identify with a father's love for his son, the lengths a parent is willing to go to to protect a child. And I don't think that there's anyone on the planet who hasn't known someone or struggled themselves with, with drug addiction. So the idea was that this would just further, um, you know, make grandpa relatable to folks because it was something that, that everybody has dealt with and just really shows what a normal uh, person he was dealing with normal life challenges, no matter how famous he was, you're not beyond, you know, those things. 
and um, you know, we thought it was important to include. Could we uh, uh, pause for a moment at least, uh, get back to the film? Have we said Netflix enough? I mean, no, I, I, to... was it, that was my next question. Yeah, the how, film... how, how easy how easy was it to sell them? It wasn't easy, actually. Um, we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in June of 2022. We had six sold out shows there and then we did great at festivals all summer, but it took us three months to sell the film. Uh, originally, all the streamers shot us down, you know, Amazon and Apple were broadcasting Yankee games and they both said no. Netflix said no. Um, and we were purchased by Sony Pictures Classic, uh, which specializes in theatrical releases. And they put us in 800 movie theaters across the country. And then we've gotten these streaming deals as a result of the partnership with Sony Pictures Classics. But originally, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, they all told us to go scratch. So, so the answer is, Dave, we shouldn't give them much credit. <laughs> well, now <laughs> I want it. Well, they, they, they had no credit for making the film, right? It no. was We made the film 100% independently, and it was Sony wow. Pictures Classic who showed the faith in us and bought the film. And now it is on those streamers because of Sony Pictures Classics. But that is where folks can see the films now. Amazon Prime, right. Apple TV, and Netflix. Okay, be before I, before I uh, change the subject, um, apart from reactions like this, two guys that loved it so much that they wanted to talk to you, uh, what, what part of the reaction has meant the most to you? Um, honestly, you know, when you grow up with this person who's your grandpa, I mean, I still first and think of him as my grandpa Yogi, mm -hmm. right? Like the guy who burned all the hot dogs at our family barbecues and I played wiffle ball with him in the yard and we made meatballs at Christmas time and like, you know, decorated the Christmas tree and he would come to my hockey games, my softball games. Like he was my grandpa, right? Normal grandpa stuff. And while I am, you know, as a kid, it was really hard for me to rationalize the fact that this person was also Yogi Berra with, you know, this superstar athlete with the 10 World Series and 18 All-Star Games and, you know, all the crazy accolades. And as an adult person, even though I intellectually know those things, it still kind of blows my mind to think about it, that my grandpa Yogi is also that guy. And mm -hmm. what also blows my mind is when you put something like this into the world and so many people who either met grandpa once or knew him well or never met him at all come back and tell you i loved your grandfather he touched me in this way or inspired me in this way and when they say it they mean love in the same sense of the word as i mean it when i say i loved my grandfather and it's incredibly humbling and mind-blowing to realize that his reach was that extensive that he made such an impact on people and it's also very heartwarming to know that all the love he put out into the world is still coming back to him in spades. Well, you you, you also make the point in, in the film that you intended to make, uh, proving how great a player Yogi Berra was. I was 11 years old uh, watching the 1956 uh, World Series, and, and that's my best memory of when I became an avid baseball fan. Uh, so I miss what we'll call Yogi Berra's best best years. And I will admit that I wasn't aware of how great a player Yogi Berra was. Yes, given the World Series titles and the MVP awards and everything else, because I didn't see it for my own eyes. I didn't know it until I watched the film. 
and uh, and I think that's what you wanted right near the top of the list as well to say, hey, this guy belonged on that field with those four guys. I think when you lay out the stats for people and just like really put them in front of people, there are some of them that are just mind blowing. You know, 1950, my grandfather did not win the MVP in 1950. And he, in 656 plate appearances, he hit 322, 128 RBI, wait, 124 RBIs, 28 home runs, and struck out only 12 times in 656 chances. Like it's ludicrous, mm. right? Um, I love that people don't put grandpa in the same breath as Joe DiMaggio, but there are only two players in big league history with more than 350 home runs and fewer than 500 strikeouts. And it's grandpa and Joe DiMaggio. When you want to link him to the the modern day a little bit more, um, grandpa finished in the top four in MVP voting seven years in a row. And there was only one other person who has ever done that. And it took 60 years. That was Mike Trout. And Mike Trout did not do it while catching 120 games a year in a wool suit. Okay. So I, I, it, that accomplishment is tremendous that he was that productive for that long playing that position. Right. Amazing. Um, And, you know, he led the Yankees and RBIs seven years in a row on teams that included Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. Um, I I think his, his, the impact that he had on pitchers cannot be overstated. Um, his ability to intuitively call games and, and and feed pitchers what they couldn't hit was just, you know, incredible. Um, tremendously high baseball IQ. You know, I, 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 you know, he caught 100. We actually said in the documentary he caught both ends of, day, yeah. of double headers 117 times. And my good friend Randy Robles at the Elias Sports Bureau went back and combed through the data and actually found two more. So we were wrong. We undercut him by two games, 119 double headers. I challenge any catcher today to do that once and then walk down the stairs the next day. Well, don't tell Nick Swisher it's two more. He's going to go even crazy. He might lose his mind, right? He might lose his mind. Okay, John, the topic of no, the no, day for. No, no, no. I, I, I've got a few more here, Dave. All right. I'm good on time, so don't worry about it. Um, the, the call or the letter that came to the family about the presidential medal of honor from beginning to end, how long was it? And and what was that call like? Um, so let's see, we started that petition on grandpa's 90th birthday, which was May 12th of 2015. We had 30 days to get the signatures it was near impossible as we talk about in the documentary and we got the signatures i think 30 days later was june 8th and it was the day of his golf outing and the white house was supposed to respond within 30 days and they did not so we knew we had gotten the signatures uh grandpa knew he had gotten the signatures uh he passed in september and we actually didn't find out until the end of October, and it was not a call, it was a via an email to the museum that yeah. we were going to get the Medal of Freedom um, that Thanksgiving. So, um, I mean, it was a pretty bittersweet moment for me because, you know, I just felt like I hadn't done enough that I came up a little short for him or whatever, and I still get a little teary when I talk about it, but um you know, I, I, I always say he wasn't the person he was because he thought it would win him a medal. 
Um, but that didn't change how awesome it was when I went with my dad and, and, and he, we were able to get that, that medal of freedom for him from Barack Obama. And it's, we have that in the museum and, uh, it's just, it's really nice for the kids to come in and, and see that. And, you know, it's not, we make the point, it's not a military honor. This is basically something that the president rewards you for being a really good human and giving back to society, um, so it, it's nice to use that as an example uh, for the kids. I guess you there's know, an I, argument uh, for uh, the necessity of 100,000 signatures. Um, but uh, it seems to me that um, somebody could decide that um, a, a proper recipient of an award like this um, should receive it uh, regardless of a, of, a, yeah. of a campaign like that. And that it must have been excruciating. And what if you'd fallen a few short like it, it just it, yeah it and, and makes you scratch your head. kind of explained to us when we were there he said you know I, apologies i just assumed that someone had previously given him a presidential medal of freedom you know like it, it you know it's it's sort of maybe another case that he was overlooked but in this case overlooked because you know the president just assumed that he was so cool that someone else had already done oh, this you know yeah What's not in the uh, the doc that you regret didn't get in? More Whitey Ford, Grandpa's relationship with Phil Rizzuto, the sixteen years he or, or uh, I'm sorry, the the years he spent with the Astros, right? Um, Elston Howard, more Elston Howard. Um, you know, there, I mean, there's so many things that we, so many things we could have put in. In, in you know, a, a Toronto baseball fan watches it, and a, a, a few things stand out, like Tony Kubek's uh, uh, quotes. Uh, Tony, of course, was uh, one of the first Blue Jays announcers. And Don Mattingly's uh, um, effect on, uh, on, on Yogi on the film and, and Yogi's effect on Mattingly. And he's, of course, uh, now uh, a bench coach with, with the Jays. So um, I just, you know, I just want to tell people that haven't seen it uh on netflix that um it's an hour and 39 minutes that they will never regret and uh double that um because they'll probably watch it twice john can we move on now yes dave please proceed uh if you don't mind lindsay uh the one of the stories of the day uh carissa thompson are you aware of the headlines and the Conference. You know, I saw them yesterday and I did not go down the rabbit hole. So I am loosely aware. <laughs> uh, well, um, I'll try and uh, I'll try and uh, provide a synopsis. Um, years ago, when she was a sideline reporter, uh, she apparently on occasion would would make up her report because she didn't have anything else. And they threw it to her and a coach hadn't shown up or whatever. So she said, the coach said we have to be better on defense in the second half and and not take as many penalties. And uh, recently she uh, admitted that. And uh, then more recently she said, well, it didn't get me fired the first time, so I'll admit it again. And uh, just about every other sideline reporter, female, uh, has um, come out uh, in, in a rage that she would uh, basically suggest that these sideline reports are a waste of time, 
not that the people who who provide them are, uh, but um, you know there are calls for her to be fired. Uh, the Twitter response is is way over the top, and I, I think there's room to uh, understand what she was trying to say. There's also room to criticize her. Uh, given that, um, do you know her? I do not. Okay. Uh, so now she's a, a sideline host as opposed to reporter. So she's not making up any stories anymore. And uh, nobody is advocating that that, that, that be done. But um, what does it say about the role and what does it say about her? I mean, I like I said, I have not gone down mm -hmm. the rabbit hole and really read about this. And I don't know her and I don't know the story and I don't know her situations. But I would say that being a sideline reporter is not easy and you often get stiffed for interviews mm -hmm. and you have to come up with something to say. I think that were I in the position, I might have just, you know, she clearly is smart enough to know that, you know, what the coach might have said because she's watching the game and knows what's happening in front of her and can see with her own eyes that they yep. need to get the ball deep or they, you know, they're not making enough tackles or whatever the heck is going on. Right. So I think that maybe if I were in her position, I would have just said what I thought and not attributed it to the coach. Um, but I think that that also, you know, sp speaks a lot to, you know, how much more, how much harder women have to work to prove their credibility here. And she probably was worried if she just gave her opinion, folks wouldn't think it was valid because it hadn't come from the coach. So I kind of understand, you know, what she was doing, whether it was right or, or not. Um, but, you know, clearly her opinion was good enough to be uh, bought as the coach's opinion. So, you know, I, I wish that all female reporters would have the confidence in themselves to just say what they thought. Um, Look, I don't think any reporter should make stuff up and attribute it to other people. You're falsifying your sources. So I understand people being critical of it. Um, I did see something last night. Where I, I forget what the word was, like an, uh, a, a travesty or an outrage. It was one of those words. And I'm having a hard time in this day and age looking at anything that happens in sports when those in those words when we're yeah. watching kids dying all over the world. So, I mean, I think perspective is important and I think understanding intentions um, is also important. And I think it's also important to understand that everybody out there is really just doing their best. I think you have a full grasp of this. Uh, I'd like to hear John's thoughts and Lindsay, you would too. Well, uh, I, I, you're I the think TV I, guy in the truck. What do you think? My answer is if she didn't talk to the coach, then you don't go to her. Don't put her uh -huh. in that position. Yeah, the, the, it is on the producers as well because they know exactly. Absolutely, what absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, she, you know, it, it, it's she's not alone in uh, in this. There are other people complicit. Uh, should she have done it? No, she shouldn't have. She should have said it would have put I, her in the position to make a report when she didn't have the any information. Correct. So. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So well, it's kind of well, cheeky to admit it too twice, but well, but that's. That that's the part that you wonder. Okay, why why is she doing this and why is she doing it now? You know, if she could if she could if she could find a way to get around talking to a coach, couldn't she find a way to answer it so that she wouldn't put the spotlight on herself that much? Well, speaking of sports reporters, uh, Lindsay, what are you doing now? Are you a full time uh, film producer or what? No, I am definitely not a full time full produ film producer. 
and I haven't worked uh, full time in sports since I got laid off by MLB in uh, 2018. My uh, main job at the moment is I work with uh, the legendary pitching coach, Tom House. Uh, he founded a biomechanics uh, sports uh, pitching app called Mustard. And I've been doing content and marketing with Tom and the Mustard app uh, since 2020. And uh, that's like kind of my day job. I'm also on the board of my grandfather's museum, the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center uh, here in New Jersey. Uh, we do lots of uh, educational programs for kids, a, a lot of great stuff. You guys can check that out, uh, yogibaramuseum.org. Mm. It's a great place. Um, and I am still doing a lot of of movie promotion interviews and podcasts. And we just had the Critics' Choice Awards. And, um, you know, I hope that we'll have some more. We were nominated for Best Sports Doc and Best Archival Doc. Uh, we didn't win, but still certainly nice to be included in that conversation. And I'm hoping that there are some more um, nominations and stuff to come. Um, and that, you know, this film will have a long tail. So so folks can uh, continue watching and continue learning about my grandpa. Well, Didn't I couldn't Tom House I... catch a famous home run in a in a bullpen. Tom House caught Hank, Hank Aaron 758th home run in the Braves bullpen. Yes, he did at Fall wow. County. Well, I couldn't there help but think when you when we started this interview, you said it wasn't going to be a baseball doc. It was going to be about a man. And then when I saw um your grandmother start to read the love letters. Oh God. <laughs> the um it's it's movie. Yeah. This is an uh, this is a 99 minute love story. Yeah, 100%. And 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 I, I you know, I had my grandmother until I was 37 and my grandpa yogi until I was 39 and I'm very aware that a lot of kids don't have their grandparents for that amount of time and being able to watch them together for almost 40 years what what an amazing gift they were just i mean they were at they nitpicked each other i don't want to make it seem like it was all you know honky oh. all the time like you know they certainly nitpicked each other my grandfather would say something like she's making me go to do this and grammy would yell from the kitchen she who is she is she the woman you've been married to for 60 years you don't remember her name <laughs> so they definitely got on each other's cases a little bit but they were just tremendous together they were such a great team and they were so cute they just were really adorable and well so like thank you for this yeah. thank you for this and thank you for and uh and your guys your 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 group of guys for doing something that uh i i guess it's kind of fitting it doesn't win awards because that's what yogi doesn't do he doesn't win awards well i All hope that is... we buck that trend a little yeah bit. i know well, I, exactly. I hope you do too yeah. you got two his, votes uh, here his greatness is uh is captured and, and proven uh, by this film. Um, if only he could have pitched, right? <laughs> he probably could have. He was very gifted. He, he was good at a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. That is Thank Lindsay, Lindsay. Lindsay Barra, the executive producer of It Ain't Over. And unfortunately for us, this interview is. It was great, Lindsay. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Dave and I'll be back after this. Welcome back to the McCallum Podcast. Dave Hodgin today. Uh, special thanks to Lindsay Barra for taking some time to make uh, two old guys feel a little uh, nervous about talking about some of the greatest baseball or the one of the great baseball players of all time. Joined now by legendary voice, CFL Hall of Famer, Bob Irving, who is in Hamilton to attend his 50th 5-0 Grey Cup. 
and it is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers again against the Montreal <laughs> Alouettes. Bob, welcome. Yeah, good, uh, good to be with you, John. 1973 was my first in Toronto. I'll never forget it. The Royal York Hotel. I heard all the stories about how they took the furniture out because people were drunk and staggering around, and it was all true. They ran horses through the lobby, and I, you know, I heard those stories, but until you see them, it's hard to believe. It certainly changed since then. I, I don't know about you guys, but when I heard that Winnipeg and Montreal were meeting in the Grey Cup for the first time, I had to check because that just didn't sound right. But it's right. And it, it boggles right. the mind, really. Yeah. It's funny, Dave, you bring that up because after the Bombers won the West Final against BC, I wasn't aware that this was going to be the first Winnipeg-Montreal game. And I started thinking about it, and I checked into it, and I was as astonished as you were. Yeah. Well, well, beyond but, that... But when, 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 so, but, but I, I, I was one of those guys that thought for sure they played in the 50s, because at times in the 50s, both of them were pretty damn good. Yeah. Well, they haven't. Uh, they hadn't. And they were pretty good. And you know, they were in the, the Bombers, of course, were in the East for a while, and, and they did right. play Montreal in, in playoff games and whatnot, but uh, no, the first ever Grey Cup. So that's cool. I think that makes this a very cool game. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a little something uh, else to add to that trivia, if that's what it is. Um, and I don't know if you know this. Bob, you know every Winnipeg stat, uh, <laughs> but maybe you don't know this one. Every time Winnipeg has won a modern-day post-war Grey Cup by beating a team from the East, that team has been Hamilton. Seven times the Bombers have beaten the Ticats. And one of them, of course, was maybe the most famous Grey Cup of all, the Fog Bowl of 62, which needed a yeah. second day because Fog Bob wasn't there. play on, uh, on the actual <laughs> Grey Cup day. But imagine... what. Winnipeg beats the East seven times and it's Hamilton losing every time. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dave, I did know that. And the, the two most recent bomber victories were against Hamilton in right. 21 and then 2019 when they ended that incredibly long 29 uh, year Grey Cup drought. And, you know, I've covered the team for 50 years, but those two games and the one here two years ago when they won in overtime and and it looked like uh, all hope was lost when they were down 22-10 going into the fourth quarter. Those games are they're firmly entrenched in my memory bank. Well, Orlando Steinauer, too, because I'm not yeah. sure he'd give up that single point, would he? That was that ended up being the issue in the yeah, end. Yeah, that's, yeah. No, you're right, John. If he had it to do over, I suspect he might do that and some other things over, too. What makes this Bomber team so good? Well, I think a lot of it is continuity. They've had the same coaching staff, the same head coach, of course, and Mike O'Shea and the same staff, the same offensive defensive coordinator, a lot of the coaches, the players, a lot of them are the same. You know, we talk about continuity in sport all the, all the time, and I think it's critically important in football, but that's a big part of it. And then they've got terrific players. They've got a, a great quarterback, uh, outstanding offensive and defensive lines, which are a must in football. And they just have a, a tremendous culture here in Winnipeg. God, I hate to throw that word out, but uh, we use it a lot in sport, and I think it applies in this situation. They've created something very special here in Winnipeg, starting with Wade Miller at the top, Kyle Walters, and then Mike O'Shea. And again, I have to tell you, it's been, and I, yeah, I've been retired for two years, but I saw the start of it and the buildup to what they're 
doing now and it's been uh, it's been fun to watch and it's been very special it's a special period in blue bomber history a lot of us are equating it to bud grant's time in the late 50s and early 60s and you know i think they got to win another great cup or two before they should be mentioned in the same category as that but boy they're getting close well you've you've uh, described what could also be uh, said is a great cup experience yeah. uh, which montreal doesn't have do you think that's a factor in this game well i do uh yeah, I think the Bombers having been there and done that, Dave, is is a pretty big deal. Uh, and Montreal, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, the Alouettes will just be happy to be there. And I think there's some truth in that, although I guess we'll find out whether that's accurate or not on Sunday. But the Grey Cup experience, here's the other thing. The Bombers lost the Grey Cup game last year in Regina to Toronto. And that thrilling finish, a blocked field goal try with a few seconds left in the game. And there's a lot of players back from that team as a matter of fact the majority of the players on this team are from that team and they haven't forgotten that and that for them is still a very sore spot and it's a driving force going into this game so I think you talk about experience the experience they had last year in losing that game is driving them and will be driving them on Sunday well the Alouettes are when you think of how they beat the Argonauts how they beat Chad Kelly I mean, it wasn't necessarily an offensive juggernaut that they were. They, they beat them on defense and beat them on special teams. Is is that maybe the only way that the Alouettes have a chance to win this game? Well, I think it was the only way the Alouettes had a chance to beat Toronto, John, and that's exactly what happened. Now, you wouldn't expect eight or nine turnovers in any game, but, you know, they got that pick six early when Toronto was driving the ball downfield. The Argos get it again and drive it downfield easily and get stopped on a third and short another turnover and then the momentum just becomes a force of nature but yeah turnovers and I I would say if, if you ask me to about Sunday's game how could Montreal win I think the only way they can win is turnovers and the Bombers don't turn the ball over very much well uh, they can't intercept a handoff to Brady Oliveira <laughs> and it would seem to me that he he's liable to be the story of the game I mean if he runs wild the Bombers win and if not, maybe they don't. Yeah, well, look, the Bombers' offense, Dave, has always relied on a very balanced attack. And that starts with Oliveira running the ball. Before him, it was Andrew Harris. And they just count on a mixture of both. Oliveira's been, you guys have watched him all year. He's been unbelievable. He's, he's done way beyond what any of us were, would have expected. He was good last year, 1,000 yards, just barely 1,000 yards. But he's taken it to another level this year. And the fact that they have arguably as good as or maybe the best offensive line in the league lends into that but uh, yeah if the Bombers are going to win this game Brady's got to be a factor if Montreal can take him away and they'll try to I'm sure th then you know that's going to hurt Winnipeg. Oliveira get cheated out of the uh, most outstanding player? I wouldn't say cheated, John, but I think, you know. Yeah, no, but I'm, want... I'm talking to my friends in Winnipeg now, okay? Yeah, I'm talking yeah. to, you know, I I like being in Winnipeg, you know? Yeah. I, I yes, Some people in Winnipeg would say you got cheated out of it. Look, I voted on this award. I know Dave did for many years, too. Uh, and there's a mentality that exists. So you got a guy up for Canadian and most outstanding player. Well, we'll vote for him for Canadian, but we'll give the other guy the outstanding player. Not that Chad Kelly didn't deserve it. He certainly is a worthy winner. But so would Brady have been. And I thought it would have been just awesome to see him win both awards. And he would have been richly deserving of the MOP as well. 
Bob, uh, uh, you hear this, I know it makes you mad. Um, so here goes. Uh, the Great <laughs> Cup tradition isn't what it once was. It used to grip the entire nation. It doesn't anymore. Uh, if, if so, why? Well, it doesn't really make me mad, Dave. I think it's reality. Uh, you know, the world has changed. The, the sports landscape in Canada has changed. Um, and so the Grey Cup isn't as relevant as it used to be. I get that and I accept that, but they are still going to draw, I don't know, three or four when you count the RDS, three or four or five million or more that will tune in on Sunday. Um, it still matters to an awful lot of people. And I know it's not the same as it used to be. Not very much in our world is, but I'm going to go to some parties here in the next uh, few hours, some great cup parties. And there'll be people from all across the country here in Hamilton celebrating the great cup. And I expect that to carry on for years. Uh, it doesn't have the same impact that it did, but I would say this, Dave, it still has a significant impact and there are still many thousands of people across this country who love the Canadian Football League and love what it has to offer. And I think that will always be the case. And so whether it's a smaller piece of the pie now, I can accept that. To me, it's, and this is, you know, I'm old school and I go way back. I still think it's relevant to an awful lot of people. Well, I can accept that if the parties are as good as they used to be. I mean, <laughs> well, some of them are still pretty good. They're a little bit different than they used to be. The music's a little, a little louder, but oh, yeah. <laughs> I was at Touchdown. Manitoba has a party every year, and I was in Regina at the game last year as a fan, and it was unbelievable. Of course, Regina's different too when when the football game is played there. But uh, man, oh man, there were it was wall to wall people in all those party suites in Regina. But the frustration I think that Dave talks about is is that. The Grey Cup means mo so much more in the West than it does in the East. Yeah, that's true. I, look, I've said this many times, the, the, the Toronto problem, as I call it, I don't know how you solve that, although I think the Argos did take a step forward this year. Attendance sure. was up, and I know only from twelve to 14,000 a game, which is still not great. 26,000 for the playoff game. I mean, that's that's a good sign, and I think the Argos have, you know, broadened their base a little bit in Southern Ontario this year, whether they can grow that anymore or not, John and Dave, I don't know. You guys, you guys live there. It's just, I don't know how you get more relevance for the CFL in Montreal. Look, they had 20 grand for their playoff game. They have an owner now who swears he's going to support the team and stay with it. He's filthy rich. The ownership situation in the league has never been better in my opinion. Um, so, Hey, onward is here's what I say onward and if we're not as significant as we used to be that's fine we can still those of us who care about it can still watch canadian football and love it well before the, we let you the, go, go ahead the nfl was nice enough to put the uh, eagles and the chiefs on monday night yeah yeah <laughs> instead of uh instead of sunday night so uh, there is there is that uh although you might be uh competing with the end of the buffalo bills game as far as viewers here i i just Speaking of the Bills, I mean, I'm sure you guys, like I did, when you watched that on, on Monday, thought back to the 09 Montreal victory over Saskatchewan, the 13th man on the field for the Riders, allowing the Alouettes to win. The very same situation beat Buffalo, although this was a, a 12th man. First thing I thought of when, when I saw that flag, I thought of being in that stadium in, in in 09 and and going man this is 
this is something. And once we figured out what was happening and never to be forgotten, and you still don't want to mention that to a Saskatchewan fan. No. Maybe you do, Bob. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind mentioning it to them. But no. I, wasn't there a shot of Paul Police in the spotter's booth oh, yes. throwing his headset off? Oh, yeah. and, uh, so disgusted with the whole thing. Oh, yeah, that's been replayed many times. But you're right, Dave. I, I was watching the Buffalo game, and I thought, wow, this is a this is a mistake that you can't make because the Bills are now they're on a real slide. But it did it did conjure up memories of the yep. the Montreal game, Saskatchewan game for sure. Before we let you go, you 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 saw Mike O'Shea as a player. You saw Jason Moss as a player. Yeah. Um, did you, obviously Mike has become a great coach. Jason has had his tenure a few places. Did you expect them to be this successful as coaches, both of them? Well, it's interesting with O'Shea, John. Remember, he he wasn't even going to get into coaching when he finished playing. And then Jim Barker called him and asked him to come and be the special teams coach with the Argos. And he kind of got hooked on it. And then the Bombers hired him in 2014 as the head coach. Kyle Walters and Wade Miller thought he'd be a great choice as a leader of men, which is what Mike is. So they go 7-11 their first year, 5-13 and their second year, start 1-4 and in his third year. And look, we're all wondering in Winnipeg, how long can they, you know, go with Mike and his program if they don't start winning? And Mike will tell you the same thing. But then they won seven games in a row. And as they mm -hmm. say, the rest is history. So I'm, I spent a lot of time around Mike O'Shea, and I'm not surprised. He truly is a leader of men. The players have enormous respect for him. They follow him. He's established guidelines in Winnipeg that everybody buys into. And if they don't, they're not there very long. So uh, I've watched his evolution and he truly has become a terrific coach because coaching is as much about leading men and getting them to follow you as it is about X's and O's. Jason Moss, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same thing. Yeah, he, had a, he had a run at it in Edmonton. It didn't work out there. Look, I don't care how great a coach you are. If you don't have great players, you're not going to yeah. win. And that's one thing O'Shea has had. And Jason Moss will hope that Montreal can build that same sort of uh, talent base because then I, I think he can have tremendous success because I think he's got what it takes to lead men. I'll tell you what, if you listen to the Cody Vajardo interview at the end of the game, uh, it was as emotional as you're going to get about how yeah. he loves what Jason Moss in resurrecting his career. It was a fantastic interview on TSN. Yeah, I did see it. And, you know, if you talk to Zach Kolaris, I think he'd tell you a, a similar story about the Bombers bringing him in at the end of 2019. And, of course, he knew Mike O'Shea from the day they were together in Toronto for a period of time. But, uh, I mean, Kolaris just goes on and on about how awesome it's been for him now at the end of his career to be a Blue Bomber and to play for Mike O'Shea. Well, get this one and then another one and maybe one after that. And Mike O'Shea can be Bud Grant. Yeah, there you go. We got a statue of Bud Grant outside the bomber store at IG Field. A lot of people are talking about statue for O'Shea already. And he just rolls his eyes when you bring <laughs> that up. He says, that sounds kind of goofy to me. That's just Mike, though. He's a, you know, he never takes any personal credit for anything. Well, I'm waiting for the statue outside CGOB for you. So, well, I'm not. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for I'll this, be, Bob. I'll be long gone before that happens. <laughs> uh, it's great to see you. Great to hear your voice. Yeah, good to see you guys. It brings back memories of the Canadian Football Network. Well, enjoy, enjoy the game, but above all, enjoy the parties. Yes, I will. Thanks, Dave.
That's Bob Irving, legendary CFL announcer, CGOB, and the Canadian Football Network. And not one question about the mood. <laughs> Where is Winfield when we need him, John? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Well, David, I'll be I back. I haven't after forgotten. <laughs> All right, David, before we go, um, I assume you will watch the Grey Cup? I will. Just. Uh... You know, uh, to be uh, to be uh, to be fair to uh, to our discussion here. So, in case we have another one, um, I'll be watching. We might on Monday. We might have Monday for a couple of minutes. There might be a all right. Might be a, a snap quiz or something. Okay, it's an know? assignment, uh, but yeah. also be a pleasure because uh, Bob's seen fifty Grey Cups, or he's been at fifty. Is that been at fifty. Uh, well, I, I can't claim that, but I, I will have seen more than fifty. So, uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll see this one. I think I've been. I think I have seen more than fifty as well. When you think about it, because I don't miss the Grey Cup ever. I mean, I love it. I, I still like the the Canadian Football League. Before we go, uh, thought on the Buffalo Bills, since they're going to be the uh, the afternoon attraction before the Grey Cup starts. Yeah. Are the Bills done? I think a lot depends on on the team-wide reaction to the firing of of, uh, of Ken Dorsey. Obviously, he had nothing to do with the, you know, the, the, the gaffe that cost the Bills the game. Uh, if there's 11 men on the field when, when Lutz kicks the field goal wide, then the Bills win, and Ken Dorsey is not fired. Nobody's fired. The Bills improved their playoff chances, though they didn't play very well, but they did win. Uh, the fact that they lost and the way that they lost and that this guy is the, is, is the coach who lost his job, I would think would anger players, uh, maybe not on the special teams because the special teams coach, uh, you know, be the first other guy you'd think of or the first guy you'd think of. But I wonder what Sean McDermott's, um, uh, appeal to this team will be beyond beyond this, given the fact that though it would have been far too dramatic for anybody to think it was realistic, given the fact that he wasn't fired, um, it, it would almost have been made more sense to fire the head coach than an offensive coordinator who had nothing to do with with the play that cost the Bills the win. So I think Sean McDermott is is kind of on trial for the rest of the season, I don't think they should have any trouble beating the Jets. But then the schedule gets very tough, mm -hmm. um, and um, we'll we'll see if if this has has sunk the Bills. It very well might have, um, not only because of the way they lost, but because of the reaction to the loss, the firing of a of an offensive coordinator who you know might not have been doing the greatest job in the world. But Josh Allen's stats ain't bad, you know. <laughs> And uh, mm -hmm. Ken Dorsey isn't throwing the interception, so um, or wasn't. So we'll see. It, it kind of fascinating for Bills watchers to uh, to see what the effect will be. Well, it's uh, Bills Jets in the afternoon, and then Bombers and Alouettes at night. It's uh, going to be a great day for football on Sunday. Thanks to Bob Irving for his thoughts on the Grey Cup, and Lindsay Barra on thoughts on her grandfather. We will talk to you Monday. This is the McCowan Podcast.